Since the beginning, members of the NC Advocates for Justice have been raising their voices, speaking out on behalf of those who go unheard, joining their voices to oppose injustice and support fair treatment for everyone under the law. With this podcast, Voices of NCAJ, we'll listen to those members, lawyers and legal professionals who founded the organization, whose dedication and energy kept it going and guided it through growth, change and challenges. Each conversation will inspire us to meet the future with a unified voice that channels the strengths and accomplishments of our organization. Welcome to Voices of NCAJ. This episode features one of our NCAJ Legends interviews recorded during Convention 2022. As part of our 60th anniversary celebration, each Legends episode allows a longtime member to tell their story and the story of NCAJ. Before we kick that off today, I'd like to remind you that our podcast is edited and engineered by our friends at Law Pods, a professional audio production company focused on helping lawyers make great sounding podcasts. They sweat all the details so you concentrate on the content. If you're thinking about podcasting, check them out at lawpods.com. They've made podcasting a breeze for us. Hello, I'm John McCabe. I have the pleasure this afternoon of spending time with uh, one of my heroes, Doug Abrams, who has been a longtime uh, NCAJ member, probably one of our biggest contributors, biggest members that we have had. In fact, it's great to see you this afternoon. Thanks for taking some time to talk to us. It's awesome. Looking forward to it. One of the things we wanted to do in these interviews was start to learn from the legends and what your experience has been practicing law and certainly coming up through NCAJ and what used to be the Academy of Trial Lawyers. Talk to us a little bit about how you started your career out. I believe you graduated law school in 1979. How did your career take off? Well, I'm going to give you more background than you probably want. I grew up in Greenville, South Carolina, when it was a mill town. My dad, Saul Abrams, and his partner, Ben Bowen, represented workers, which really wasn't done. I mean, it was this was NACA time, meaning... There was no such thing as ATLA, AHA. And I knew from the time I was 10, I wanted to be an attorney and I wanted to do this kind of work. There are a lot of stories to be told about all that, including my dad had an office in the first federal building in Greenville, South Carolina, on the first floor. On the second floor was the farmer's market, which was called the curb market. And in those days, literally all the farmers from that part of South Carolina and part of North Carolina came to Greenville, you know, for every kind of vegetable known to man. And my brother, who's 11 months older than me, and I would be taken down every Saturday and Sunday because my father worked seven days a week because the workers in the mills could only come when they could come. And there was this row of hard chairs, you know, it looks like some of them Perry Mason, honestly. They're lined along the walls. And Big Saul's rule was, you want to see him, you had to sit in your chair, and then when the client leaves to go talk to him, they all stand up, move down one, and it doesn't matter whether you worked in the mill and you came from the mill and you had lint in your hair, or if you were some executive at one of the banks there, you took your turn. It also didn't matter whether you were black or white. He could care less in terms of the order in which you were received to do whatever legal work you needed done, which was a little bit unheard of at the time. So when my brother and I were there, we would be given a nickel, 
we could buy one soda per day and we would run up and down the halls and with these, you know, every strata of socioeconomic group known in Greenville, South Carolina, 45,000 people. I thought that was really cool. And what I really thought was that hit me was when people would say, you know, your dad's a good man. And I thought, wow, this is, one, you get all the sodas you want because you're the boss. <laughs> and two, you're doing something. Yeah. I went to Wake because I knew I wanted to go to Wake Law School, and I knew I wanted to get practice in, probably in North Carolina. So when I was going to law school, I asked my father, okay, and Ben Bowen, who's the best plaintiff's attorney in North Carolina? And they said, Charlie Blanchard. We know him. He's really good. So I bugged the hell out of Charlie and Howard until they gave me a summer clerkship, and then they were foolish enough to give me a job. So you came right out with Charlie Blanchard and Howard Twiggs. Right. And really, it was all I wanted to do. Alan Bailey had been very much present at Wake in CATL at that time, and we had known about AHA from my father and from Ben. So literally from the moment I had a law degree, I was involved in NCATL, which, to give it a little bit more background. I'd love to hear it, yeah. There's so many, so much to tell. First of all, Bill Thorpe, Alan Bailey, uh, Howard Twiggs, Charlie Blanchard really were in their prime. I mean, they were, they were the big dogs, and they were great. And and they what were was hard. that like at that time? I mean, tell, tell me what that was. The truth of the matter is nobody really knew what we were doing. Now, because of the sophistication of the practice of law, because of so much work that was done then, at that point, people were figuring out, hey, we didn't have computers, all right? We had electronic machines, IBM Selectronics, these little balls that, that was, you do some forms on them. I bought myself three computers, three IBM computers that had 10 megabyte hard drives because Charlie didn't think anything that anybody's ever going to use a computer. He saw no reason for them. So when you talk about things like animations, those didn't exist. It was a huge undertaking to get large enlargements. You literally had to go to these professional photography places and beg them to put your work on to do enlargements. There was so much that we were basically winging it. And AHA was really important, ATLA at the time. The thing that was really impressive was even though they were really in the, they were very much in their prime, they were just devoted to the idea of we're going to teach these young lawyers how to do things. This is, we've got to educate each other how we can do it. We don't need to be reinventing the wheel each time there's a trial. So it was, an, it was pretty amazing time in North Carolina's history. You know, North Carolina was really going through a lot of of change and really good change. Bear in mind that at that point in time, I bet Raleigh was 100,000 people. I mean, and it was old Raleigh. Are you from old Raleigh? Yeah, yeah. And IBM came in and the RTP was getting going good. So all of this change going on and NCATL was really driving it. Bear in mind too that in terms of the most basic things that we take for granted now, which would include, you know, the fact that racism is a bad thing. Well, 
you had just had Swan versus Board of Mecklenburg in 1972. It was not a time where everybody embraced the fact that everybody gets a chance. And women in law school, as Peggy um, Abrams was really one of the few attorneys, female attorneys, and then you go to how many female trial attorneys, it was not at all something that there, you turn around like you see here, and there's so many fantastic women attorneys. It's unbelievable. That was not happening then. Right. And even judicial races were something that we had to build the, the credence and gravitas of NCATL in terms of being able to have reasonable input into who are the judges. Can you tell me a little bit about that process? I'd love to hear what you know the North Carolina Academy of Trial Lawyers was like at that time and then the evolution of it, because you were a big reason the evolution took place. It's really fair to say that there that some of the folks like Bill Thorpe in particular understood that if you don't have fair judges, the whole system falls apart. And there were not particularly fair judges at that point in time. There were some frankly, there's some People, you know, going to their names, that be, they're no longer with us. There's no need to be dancing on the graves of, of particular people. But there were some beasts, I mean, just true beasts. And we knew it. They knew it. They would rule for their friends. You'd go in, you'd see somebody who they'd practice law with, and you knew damn well that they were going to give that person anything they asked for. So we began looking at, okay, really, to be relevant in the system— you have to have judges who are going to know what the law is and apply the law. And that meant recruiting people who were good jurists. Because not every great lawyer is a good judge. I mean, for heaven's sakes, that would be the worst judge ever. There's a reason. I'm not going to argue with you on that. Right. That would be terrible. <laughs> I mean, not the most self-aware person in the world, but I get it. I'm not going to be somebody who should be a judge. So you need to have people who are of that kind of personality that they'll you know, enforce the law appropriately and with decent reason. So you have guys like Gene Phillips who ran and got elected for the on the Court of Appeals. Hugh Wells was an example just of people who we would talk to them, they would talk to us, and we'd say, you know, you'd really be good at this. You, and they were. And then you look back at their opinions, and the opinions are really, have been really good for North Carolina. So I think the fact that we became involved in the political process of making sure that the judges were not beasts and were not ideologues, but they're people who believed in the law, made a big difference. I thought Brad Wilson, who was Jim Hunt's legal counsel, did a really good job of letting potential judges get vetted by both sides so that they were getting people who were not embarrassments. They were getting people who were solid and who deserved to be on the bench. And so we see the evolution of, of that. I would say now it's, even, it's probably the most important time to make sure we're looking at judges and that we make sure we don't have ideologues, but that we have people who understand their role. I've heard you talk about education, that that, that was a big part of the founders. And, and when you came in being brought up with Howard and Alan and Charlie Blanchard. I've heard you talk about the advocacy. Talk to me a little bit about how you've seen the community of NCAJ 
kind of form and come together and change. NCATL was always family. I mean, the truth of the matter is that we all grew up together. We took care of each other, still do. And you know, back in the day, there was this thing called Ocean Creek, and the families would get together down in South Carolina, and everybody was taking care of everybody else's kids. I mean, Bill Mills's kids and our kids were pretty much inseparable. Your kids, some of whom are members now. Right. Noah and Elliot. I mean, I still remember in one of the the opening parties, the Adam Stein was just tremendously amused at two-year-old Noah Abrams kicking a, this big beach ball around and chasing it inside the big tent. We've always been about family, and that part of it has never changed. It's always been with people like, again, Charlie Blanchard, who was really did treat every young attorney as one of his kids. I mean, and I think Philip Miller will tell you that that's definitely true. It's certainly something I've experienced. I mean, he, he and Howard were both like that. Right. They both felt they just take you under the wing and feel like they've known you forever. I remember the first time you talked to me. I remember the first time Howard talked to me. And just it, it was so warming and welcoming. Well, your idols. Yeah. I mean, you know, Howard in particular is one of the warmest people in the world, we used to laugh that, you know, his, his profession should be giving eulogies because everybody was the greatest lawyer ever. <laughs> and I remember hearing him his, say that. His introductions to every single attorney was, this is the most marvelous attorney who's ever walked the face of the earth. And Clarence Darrow wished they were he <laughs> or her. Well, you became president of the organization when? I think it was 1994, wasn't it? Uh, I will take your word at it, 1994. Um, it was total chaos. Tell us about that. Politically, what had happened was for the first time in basically forever, the North Carolina General Assembly House went Republican. The Senate had always been pretty, con really very conservative and very much, we tend to call it pro-business, but it's really not pro-business, it's because it doesn't help business to basically have a skewed system, which is very much skewed toward whatever a few big insurance companies wanted. And we knew that, they knew that. It was like whatever, at that point, CPNL. Whatever CPNL wanted, they got. Whatever in Nationwide wanted, they got. So when that happened, we had NCHA, that point NCATL, A, they had lost the executive director. So we had no executive director. We had a, a house that didn't like us at all. And we had a Senate that, but for folks like Roy Cooper, who was in the Senate at the time, we were, and Tony Rand, we were in big, big trouble. And, term, and the citizens in North Carolina were big, big trouble because they were, they were all going to get steamrolled. Mm -hmm. Janet wore black and Wade Bird and I, Burton Craig, basically lived down in the General Assembly. And it was a time in which we really had to fight to keep North Carolina's legal system from getting totally destroyed. And how did you do I mean, obviously, the intelligence of that group, the people skills of that group, and your willingness to sacrifice time from your practice. But how do you overcome that landscape? Well, we couldn't have, really, we couldn't have done it without Tony Rand and Roy Cooper. That was, you know, Roy was a young dude at that point, and he really stood up 
for people's rights. And he did it in his usual, very calm, straightforward, uh, full of integrity way. I'm not entirely sure how he did it, because I look back and go, we did that? That's amazing. <laughs> but, they, for example, they, they wanted to completely change products liability law in North Carolina, which had already been really bad. I mean, it was really a law that, or a, our products liability laws at that point, really were back in the 1950s. And so even with the first iteration of 99B, but what happened was, even though there were some, there were a group of Republicans who really were ideologues, but at that point there were a group of Republicans who went, look, we just need balance. We're just, they were trying to stay in power, and, but they at least had a sense of balance. And so we got a reasonable law that doesn't really, it's a little bit behind the times. We're still probably in the year 2000 in our products liability rather than 2022, sure. but we're not 1950. Where we are in 1950, obviously, is in contributory negligence, which is an abomination, and everybody knows it. We knew it in 1979, we knew it in 1984, we knew it in uh, 2009, and we know it now. It's just horrible. Right. But if you look at um, overall our legal system, it's a legal system that really, at this point, does work. And as long as we can keep it, we're going to have a legal system that is it's still not really very progressive, but it's not something that you look at and go, this is just an absurd abomination of what the law should be. And you've certainly been a big champion. You recently wrote the bill that was introduced to try to get away with or do away with uh, contributory negligence. One of, the things, one of the many things that's always impressed me about you is you were president in 1994, and your presence since then has never wavered. You're never one of these people that have pulled back from the organization. In fact, I've seen you getting more and more involved, uh, which has just, one, been very beneficial to us. But explain for us why you've done that. What, what was your choice to remain involved when you kind of did your time? Really, the only organization that truly advances North Carolina in the legal system in, the judi in our judiciary is NCAJ. I mean, you have all these other groups that really don't care if they destroy the legal system. That doesn't matter to them. And they don't care about our clients. They don't care about what happens to working families in North Carolina at all. That's just not their problem. They view it as not my job, NMB. It's like, let my job, in their view, their job is not to have a fair system. It's not to protect working people. It's not to protect families. You know, you're ordinary people. Now, everybody's not really ordinary. They're all extraordinary in their own way. But when you think about it, you say, okay, you're a typical working family, however they're composed. These people don't care about that. It's, not a, it's just not their problem and not their job. But it's our job. One of the things, the other thing I've admired about you is your competitive spirit. Uh, I know you grew up playing. Me, competitive? I, I, Where did I, that I, come I, from? Maybe I've misspotted this. Maybe I'm wrong. But I think there may be a little bit of competitiveness in you. Um, maybe stemming from your childhood sports experience and your upbringing and all that. Tell me, you've had enjoyed tremendous success. You've earned that success. You've remained engaged in the practice I spend a lot of time with you, and I talk to you about your cases and your enthusiasm for your cases. 
is as high as I've ever seen it. What keeps you going? Um, you. <laughs> <laughs> You're God. You know, it's true. It's like <laughs> the, honestly, it, it's McCabe and folks like McCabe. We've, you know, we've all grown up together. I remember when you were young. <laughs> now you're this beast. <laughs> you know, like, great guy. And it's true. And that's part of, uh, we've got a job. I mean, is would I in a ideal world love to be in a situation where there was, we'd reached critical mass with NCAJ and all the young lawyers were now where you are? I would love that. I'd still be involved in part because that's what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. I mean, but you say that's what you're supposed to do. I mean, there are a lot of people who don't do that, but you have this mentality that's really special. Where does that come from? Um, everybody's supposed to do something. I mean, you know, honestly, you think about all the factors that have to come together uh, for NCAJ to be where it is. You know, I look at my life, I've got a great-grandfather who decided that it, um, it would be a really good idea to get away from Russia in 1897, decides to come to Rocky Mount, North Carolina, like from Balistock, Russia, and you go, really? My grandfather also came from that part of Russia. His whole village was totally destroyed in the pogroms. Every single human being who lived there died. Hugo decides he's going to come down to go from New York to Orangeburg, South Carolina. My father decides to be a lawyer after being shot down over Palesti, Romania, being a prisoner of war and had to escape. And he comes to South Carolina and becomes a trial attorney who's fighting for civil rights in Greenville, South Carolina, where honestly the Feds were tapping our phones because they thought we were some kind of radical, <laughs> you know, bad influence, if you will. Yeah. I mean, in those days, the, the taps weren't that sophisticated. You hear this <laughs> ping, ping, ping. That's why they call them taps. They yeah. go ping, ping, ping. All that had to happen. Um, I had to met Peggy the first day of undergraduate school at Wake. And you go, there's a reason why we're doing this stuff. It's not just ego. It's we're saving people's lives. And you've never lost sight of that, which is, I've always loved that and admired that so much about you is the impact you've tried to make on your clients. It's never been about collecting a fee or anything. Never once have I seen you chasing a dollar sign. It's always been what's right for the client. And I think you just explained where that came from. Well, it's, it really matters. I mean, we're, you know, a lot of people have asked me, particularly in the last five or 10 years, when are you going to retire? And I'm going, I spent all this time trying to figure out how to do this. Now I understand it. And why would I stop when the work's there to be done? Now, in all honesty, you know me so well that you know I'm really straightforward. And I am whether I'm in front of camera or not in front of camera. Yes. Noah and Melissa are, I guess it's being taped, Noah Abrams, Melissa Abrams. They're Your just son and daughter. Son and daughter are amazing attorneys. And I've told them, they are far better attorneys at their age than I ever was. It's just true. All of us can take credit for that who are in NCHA, but part of it is they're just really talented. But even so, they can't now do all the work that they have. And if they don't do it, if we don't do it, who's going to do it? Are we just going to tell people 
their lives don't matter. I'm sorry, I'd really rather be down at the beach chilling out than helping you avoid dying from not getting the right medical care or that doesn't make sense to me. I'm glad you brought up Noah and Melissa and you've talked about Peggy. You've had the Abrams and Abrams offer. I, I keep pushing for Abrams, Abrams, and sometimes McKay, but I don't think that's in the works. Well, we've got the adoption papers. <laughs> We're working on that. Tell, tell me what the experience has been like having Noah, Melissa, Peggy with you. It, it's such a great family. Uh, I think it's the first family of NCAJ. What's that been like? Uh, it's totally awesome. One, Peggy, of course, is unique. As y'all will, y'all are going to do the interview with her, somebody will, and she's, she's just amazing. She is. Thing is, she's always been amazing. She was amazing at age 18. She's even more amazing now. Noah and Melissa are just fantastic to be around. Um, they're both great lawyers. Noah would make you proud in the way that he chirps me. He, you, know, <laughs> you and he probably get the prize for chirping Doug. And Melissa. Always endearing. Though. Always endearingly. And Melissa is just wonderful. I have told her many times my goal in life is to never tell her no to anything, any request she makes. And she's just so full of life. She's a wonderful attorney and is brilliant. And she has a great sense of humor. So it's just fun every day coming into the office. Your reputation is you take on the complex, challenging cases that nobody else can handle whether it's an auto defect case, going up against some gigantic auto manufacturer, a plant explosion. Is there a particular moment in your career that you go, this is the biggest moment, or this is my favorite moment from practicing law? Oh, I have a, I mean, I really do have a few. And, of course, as you know, because we've talked about it a lot, I really like out of state, arrogant out-of-state attorneys from big firms because they're positive that we're, because we live in North Carolina, we're idiots. Yeah. One of the most fun event times came when it was in the, the West Pharmaceutical Plant, which was in, in Kinston, North Carolina, had blown up. That's not fun. We were in litigation and represented 43 of the people who had been hurt or the families had been killed. And one of the main defendants was a producer of a, one of the chemicals that created dust that wound up causing the dust explosion. So... We had gotten a court order to depose the designee. The designee shows up. Well, they had produced an MSDS that was falsified because I'd already gotten a copy of the original MSDS sheet for their product, and they had been ordered to produce it, okay? So when they produce it, they produce one that had been falsified. It was not the same one I had in my hot little hands. So I go... Mr. Howell, you're here as the designee, right? Yes. And you understand that the court has ordered you to be here, right? Yes. So it's not your happiest day, right? No, I'm, I understand what you're saying. Yes, I'm here on a court order. And you're ordered to produce these things, right? Yes. So I start going through documents. I get to document number four, and I say, this is the MSDS sheet. Yes, this is one of the the document you ordered to produce, yes. And, of course, you understand it was important that you give me a valid, undoctored, unaltered version of this. And he goes, yes. So I keep trucking, and I get to about Exhibit 30, and I go, I want to show you. And we come in, I make sure we do it after a break. 
you're good to go, Mr. Howe. Yes, you, you've had your break, yes. Okay, well, let's get going. You remember when I asked you about that? And this is on video with a PowerPoint. And I go, okay, you showed me number four, right? And you told me you understood that it needed to be, that these documents had to be in the original condition, right? Couldn't be altered, couldn't be doctored, couldn't be falsified, nope. Well, let me show you number 31. This document is the original document, isn't it? Yes. This document shows that you said that the dust was explosive. Yes. And the one you showed me, number four, was falsified. Yes. It was doctored. Yes. And it was doctored on your computer, right? Yes. And it was doctored in Word, right? Yes. And were you the one who actually falsified it? He pauses because... I don't remember. Are you serious? Yes. <laughs> Holy cow. Yeah, you, you, when you share your cases, um, you know, I, I know some of the Conagra cases and the example you just gave, you always are so diligent and thorough in your investigation of the case. I mean, seeing you take a deposition has been one of the great joys and learning experiences of my career because it's just an amazing experience. So just thank you for sharing that with us. Oh, uh, we have another story to tell. Are this is the John. Sto- are you going to tell the story on camera? I'm going to tell I, the story. I know st- the story you're going to tell. Yes, you do. Okay. <laughs> this is going down the archives of NCAJ history. So it's, fire away. I want it. I'm going to be. I want it preserved. It, this needs to be preserved. Okay. So John, as you know, you and I were handling the, this case where a worker was hurt when a when the a guy operating a crane managed to knock a worker, a tree worker, out of the tree in his harness under the ground, right? The folks who are listening need to understand that we spent a lot of time getting ready for this this expert deposition. And the expert walks in, and you correct me if I say one word that's not true. So we're set up, we've got two laptops with uh, Hangout, Google Hangout, so we can communicate with each other, right? And the guy comes in, and he was poof, poof, man. He had this here. It was, you know, the Grecian formula, and it was all back. He had this completely manicured Fumanchu. So I type on the notes, 15 minutes. John McCabe, note comes back, 15 minutes, question, question, question. Are you, what are you talking about? I go, this deposition, this case is over in 15 minutes, and... McCabe's note, come on, man, we got a deposition to take. Me, $20 says 15 minutes. McCabe, your own. (laughs) (laughs) All true, that's far right. Very true. So my cross-examination begins with, Mr. Avery, first of all, can you agree that nobody should ever in any courtroom use junk science? Oh, no, sir, that shouldn't be done. You agree, for example, that gravity existed in Cabarrus County on November 10th, 2015? Yes, sir. It would be junk science to say that things fell up, right? (laughs) Yes. So you would agree that if any expert ever uses junk science in a courtroom, they should never be allowed to testify again, right? Yes, because anybody who would do such a thing could never be relied upon. Yes. So if any expert said that something fell up in Cabarrus County on November 10th, 
2015, they should be excluded as a witness, yes. And they should be excluded as a witness in every case, yes. Well, this particular harness was on a tree, right? Yes. It was hung on a limb, yes. It can't fall up, true? No. And if it has weight on it, it cannot fall up, yes. It has Mr. Smith's weight on it, it can't fall up, yes. So you can agree that there was no way that Mr. Smith fell up, no. The only explanation for this incident occurring is that your client's crane operator knocked it and took the weight off so that it could fall, it could loosen its tie around this tree. Yes. McCain, $20. <laughs> and I think you did it in five minutes. I think we had it set up so that once we got through the initial background and you started substantive questions, I think it was five minutes and it was the best $20 I've ever paid you. So. And that was a great experience, and I love going through that with you. I think Noah was with us. I think he was on board, too. He didn't think he could do it, and sure enough, he did. I think Noah was on board remotely, wasn't he? I think he was there. Was he? I remember us being in the parking lot. Oh, yeah. I can't believe that just happened. So (laughs) that was a great case. It was a, a great Abrams moment, for sure. You've certainly seen the organization change a lot, and it's gone through a lot of changes in the last five years. It's gone through a lot of changes this past month. Tell us how you feel about the organization right now. First of all, I'm going to give you the short answer, then we'll give them the long answer. The organization right now is, is set to have another rocket launch, another moon launch. And I'll tell you why. One, structurally, we're the best we've ever been. There's no doubt about it. Before, we were pretty much ad hoc. It tended to work because you had people who had been around NCAJ and they had a certain way of doing things in it work fine, but it wasn't structured. And the problem when things aren't structured is then you can't pass things down. So every year is a new learning experience. It's really like writing, you know, you see these people in TV commercials and there's this blackboard and somebody's got this incredibly complicated equation. Well, we would be like the people who write this incredibly incredible equation that takes a whole blackboard and then about May 31st we just of each year, we wipe it off, and then they have to spend the next year writing out this very complicated equation. When you have structure, you have the equation there, and go, oh, well, here's the equation. Here's what we need to do next, or here's the next equation. The other thing is, financially, we're at a place because of a series of good decisions and a series of lucky, fortuitous events, if you believe in fortuitous events, but and set of decisions so that now NCHA is capable, well, it has the funds that it takes to be relevant. And it's not constantly chasing its tail where before, honestly, we were sort of like, had a great candle, we lit it, and then it burned it to the ground, and every year we'd have to go get a new candle. Not a great way to run a, a true business, honestly. Here's sort of the, the story of how we got financially where we are. Alan Bailey decides, we need a building, we need a home. And he comes to Howard Twiggs and says, Howard, we need a home. And Howard, who does what Alan Bailey says, because Howard's got good judgment, comes to me and says, Doug, we need to buy a building. And I go, Howard, first of all, you know I'm going to do whatever you and Alan say, okay? But 
we don't have an executive director. We just got clobbered in the House. And when you look at what they're going to do with gerrymandering, this is going to be a slog. He goes, Doug, we need a home. (laughs) And I know just where we can get it. It's the North Carolina Bar Association. And I go, you sure about this? They go, yeah. And you know what? We're going to pay it off early. And I go, you sure? So we do. He would, I go, look, it's either going to be the best decision we ever make or the worst. But if we're going to do it, we're going to do it. We're not going to halfway this, right? And so Howard, Alan Bailey gives a lot of money. The firm I was in at the time, Charlie Blanchard Twiggs, Abrams, gave a lot of money. Wade Bird, who we've been silent on, who's just astonishing, gave a lot of money. Kirby gave money, I'm pretty sure. And money was continuing to be raised. So it was nice having our home, no doubt about it. But the problem, when it, honestly, when it first came up, one of the things I said was, you know, ever, what happens with every building that's ever been purchased is eventually it gets sold. Sooner or later, every building that's ever been built will be sold. And, you know, I just hope when, it, when that happens, that it's at a good cycle and not a bad cycle because every real estate transaction has, is dependent on the economy and things well beyond our control. Well, the sale of the building, if you looked at it, looked like it could have been an absolute train wreck. I liked having our building, but the reality is for where everything was, we needed the money, and not the money to spend it. We needed the money to have the kinds of resources that it takes to be able to do things we need to do. So we needed not to be spending money making a fancy home for ourselves. We needed the money for doing things for North Carolinians. So with David's help, your help, I think Kim Crouch did a very good job on that aspect of things. Now, what people would initially say is, well, isn't it a shame we don't have our building? And my response is, isn't it a wonderful thing that we have resources that nobody else has? That's exactly right. Now we just have to be intelligent about how we use those resources and then we keep it. I'm so glad you brought that story up, and um, that's a great one for our members to hear. The Now we're much more professional in how we've looked at the finances. The sale of the building was huge. We know what we have to work on, and we have a good plan in place for doing so. And it's also a good time in that we've got young lawyers coming up. You know, you've got, in addition to like Noah and Melissa, you you know, got Davis Poisson, Stuart Poisson, uh, Helen Bedour just come to mind immediately. Laura Newton comes to mind. Just some Elliot Abrams, who we haven't really talked much about. We haven't talked much. We, we've mentioned Elliot a little bit earlier, but it's but, superstar. You know, there are some real superstars in this group, and they are going to do remarkable things. What's your hope for the organization? Uh, if you had to say, this, this is where I really hope you're going to be, what, what would your hope for us be? Really, what I'm hoping for is that the next generation will look at it and go, we've got things that we can do to make North Carolina well, that we can t- really, that we can take the progress that we have in Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill, 
Wilmington, Winston-Salem, Charlotte, Greensboro, and bring that to the state. We need to be a 21st century state. We need to um, have a legal system that does a much better job in terms of protecting everybody. We need to give workers more protection, not less. We need to make sure that families have more protection, not less, that when uh, people are using products that they're safe, we need higher limits for insurance. It's an abomination that it's as low as it is. We need to be making sure that in terms of family law, that there's access to attorneys. We need to make sure that our working class people, families have access to attorneys. We have to have a criminal system that really takes the science that we have and we make sure we're not convicting innocent people. We need to make sure that the prosecutors really are not trying to put notches on their, the handles of their pistols, but that they're really looking at the law from the standpoint of, is this somebody who we can reasonably believe has done this crime? And is, does it make sense to charge them with what the heck we're charging them for? We need to make sure that mental, people who have mental illness don't wind up in jail rather, because we don't have the resources to treat them. And really, I hope that that's where the young people are going to take it, that they'll take some of the work that's been done by people like Charlie Blanchard and Bill Thorpe, Howard Twiggs, John Drew Warlick, who doesn't get mentioned enough, you know, Gene Phillips, and some of us who've been trying to not screw it up, and some of the work that you, in particular, and David Ensign have done, which I think have been remarkable, and basically jump into the future wide open and not be afraid. The thing that's always impressed me about NCAAJ has been when we're at best, we do what's right. We have spine and we have integrity. I want to go back to something you said very early when we started this, and it was something about your dad and how people would come to him and say he was a good man. Doug Abrams, you're a good man. I love you to death. Thank you for everything you've done for me. Thank you for NCAAJ. And thanks for uh, sitting down and taking some time to talk to us today. Well, I can't thank you enough for that. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Voices of NCAJ. For more information on the North Carolina Advocates for Justice and how to join or support NCAJ, please visit our website at www.ncaj.com.